0: If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open them. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here this morning and uh, really closing down this section in chapter 10 um, that began in chapter eight. And chapter eight began with Paul shifting, pivoting, if you will. Um, to a discussion about food sacrificed to idols. And we kind of figure that out and learn that and see that as he writes in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. now concerning food sacrificed to idols. And so there's, there's been a, a signal given that he is shifting topics. And it's more than likely... ...also a signal given that he is addressing something that the Corinthian church had asked him about. And it's interesting as chapters 8, 9, and 10 get developed... ...the conversation about food sacrifice to idols takes some some different twists and turns along the way. And where we end in chapter 10... ...is a little bit different than where he began in chapter 8. And as you and I interact with this, here's the interesting thing. uh, Idolatry is everywhere. It doesn't take us a lot of thought to figure that out. Worship is everywhere. And individuals will spend time and money... ...and their passions and their interests will be devoted to a whole host of things... And it's a function of worship. The question becomes, what are we worshiping? Who is it that we are worshiping? But if we're honest with ourselves, by and large, we don't have temples here in Waynesboro, like the Temple of Apollos. That would have been in Corinth. We don't have places where animals are being sacrificed and food is being eaten at large banquets in those temples. We don't have meat markets like they would have had where that food or that animal that would have been sacrificed would have made its way to the meat market. And we, when we go to Martin's, or save a lot, or wherever it is that we buy our meat, don't find ourselves often wondering, did this come from anywhere other than a processing plant that has the USDA stamp of approval on it? Uh, So there's a lot of differences between what it is that Paul's identifying and writing about in 8, 9, and 10, and what it is that you and I experience. And yet, there's a whole lot of similarities. And so what I want to try to do this morning is just kind of trace through Not just the differences, but then how the similarities give us some principles to think through. And so in chapter 8, Paul begins to address this idea of food sacrifice to idols. And the question is whether or not we can go and have a banquet at the temple of an idol and eat the food and drink the drink. And the answer Paul gives is, we can, but should we? And he does so and makes his argument based on love for one another. In essence, he agrees with the theology of the Corinthians. Because they were saying, look, idols aren't real. They're just carved out of wood or made out of stone or covered with precious metal. Actually, Isaiah makes that point in chapter 45, I believe it is. Um, where he says, look, it, the, the folly of idolatry is that when somebody chops down a tree to carve it into an idol, they take half of the tree they've chopped down and they make a fire with it to warm themselves and cook their food. And then they take the other half of it and they worship it. He goes, this, yeah, this is foolish to think that this material, which is suitable for fire and cooking is though some type of god to worship who will give you anything. And the question there, should we engage in the banquet house of idols? We can, but should we? Idols aren't real. And the argument there that he makes is based on whether or not it causes somebody in the body to struggle and stumble and so here's where I'd love for just some interaction and feedback okay so I've thrown out over the last several weeks the questions of of, or the examples of uh, like card playing going to theaters um, dancing in in some sense Um, some of those I can relate to directly um, just because of just my own experiences and just things that mom and dad said, no, we're not going to do. Um, others of them just were, are, are things that I have heard along the way. So, for example, card playing has never been an issue in my family. Um, I think historically, culturally, it's probably not the issue anymore. Um, but I'm just curious, where, where kind of have you seen and experienced and, and felt some of those Um, We're not going to do this because it's it's worldly or it's close to the line. Does that make sense? Is that question? So, what what examples would you toss out that you've seen and felt and experienced along the way? Yeah. Yes, Yvonne. Shopping on Sunday. Or restaurants on Sunday. Okay. Okay, David, were you going to say something? Okay. Okay. Funny story for you. Um, I was sophomore in college. It's two thousand three, two thousand four, and Texas Hold'em poker had just r- skyrocketed in popularity. ESPN began covering it on their family of networks and the poker championships and everything. And in college, we bought chips and we played poker. None of us gambled. We just had chips and we played poker. And it was just what we did. Uh, it was a game in that sense. And we're at a church for a youth ministry module. So what that means is that I had a week's worth of lectures and assignments and classes at a church building, and there was a room where the guys slept in, and there was another room where the girls slept in, and then we we just lived on site for a week, ate all our meals there. The church had shower facilities. Um, Well, as the brilliant sophomores in college that we were, we thought it was wise to go ahead and play Texas Hold'em poker on a Sunday morning before church began. And there was somebody from the church that walked into the room and saw us playing poker in, in just about... Had a heart attack, and we realized, like, oh, we probably shouldn't be doing it (laughs) because of what this looks like. It looks like we're gambling in the Sunday school room. Um, And so we're like, wow, okay, we need to file that one back. That was not a wise decision. So, yes, card playing. Other examples that come to mind? Okay. All right, very good. Yeah. You have an example, Tucker? No, just a hand to raise. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Right. Inappropriate dancing. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting characteristics about a lot of these examples is there, there is a line and the line gets crossed and the line has been crossed. And that's probably the reason why then the decision was made over here that we're never going to do this because somebody over here crossed the line and we just got to stay away. And, and that's kind of what you see at, at, at play in chapter 8 is Paul talks about there you, you know that you may possess knowledge, but the, the person who with former association with idols can't go to the banquet hall and eat with the freedom that you do, that's saying that they personally might have crossed the line at one point in time in their life. And you, perhaps without that baggage, if you will, engaging in that, actually causes them some difficulty. And that's where that phrase that it may not be your issue, but it becomes your responsibility, came from. That if we know each other, then we can love each other enough to help one another not have moments where our consciences are, are hindered upon. And then that's what happens then in chapter 9, as Paul just walks through example after example after example of what it looks like in his life to surrender rights to one another. And then in chapter 10, we come back to the issue of eating and drinking in the house of idols. But there, the Apostle Paul, quite frankly, actually completely changes his argument and his point of application. Because in chapter 8 the question was should we or or can we eat in the house of idols? And he gives the answer essentially we can but we shouldn't out of love for one another. Well in the beginning of chapter 10 and what we looked at a couple weeks ago he concludes by saying look yes the, the physical image of an idol is not real but behind the worship of pagans there actually is a spiritual component, a demonically inspired component that is real. And you can't have fellowship with Jesus and have fellowship with demons and think that both are okay. And that word that he uses at the middle, really verses 18, 19, 20 that we see repeated in chapter 10, participation, it's that word fellowship where it comes from. And the point he's making there is that there does need to be separation. In how we consider wisely not just engaging in everything the world does. We do need to have separation. Because it does actually matter. There is something spiritually happening there. It's not just physical. And then we, in chapter 10, the second half that we'll look at beginning in verse 23, I think Paul helps us then unpack what exactly our engagement looks like. And so the question, really, that exists is how do I, as a Christ follower, who's supposed to be singular in our focus and unyielding in passion, Live in a world and a culture in a city that doesn't follow Christ. So how do I engage? So we've not had, nor do we in Waynesboro, have a temple where there will be animals sacrificed and butchered and steaks offered there in dedication to Apollos. The leftover meat's not going to make its way to Martin's and put down and marked down as a manager special for us to Purchase and consume. So I think for us to try to get our minds wrapped around the point that Paul is making. Is we need to consider his points and the scenarios that he's going to give in this context. The, the overt or explicit act of sinfulness. So that's what I'm going to submit to you that will help us unpack his scenarios Because the scenarios he gives are very specifically related to meat and idolatry and the relationship that those two things have with one another. I think principally behind that, what we have is the question, how do you and I interact with a business or neighbors or media content where it is just very clear that the purpose or the point is to run completely contrary to what the Lord would have and be honored by. So I'm going to call that overt sinfulness, all right? Not, not the, while we do it, we find ourselves still struggling with sin. I'm talking about the, I know that's going to offend the Lord and offend Christians and I'm in type of conclusion or actions or media. And I think his scenarios are gonna help us understand then how we interact as we go. So let's pray. And then we'll we'll hop into the text and see if we can't have some further interaction and conversation as we go. Well, God, we pray that you'd help us to just think through those, those good questions of how do I how do I live and interact in today's world. In ways that honor and glorify you. In ways that are singular in focus, that are unyielding in passion. God, our culture is seeming like it it is moving at light speeds away from any Christian moorings or foundations it would have had or been built on. And we find ourselves today asking questions and having to make choices that are perhaps very different than were made 100 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever. But God, we want to be faithful in this life that you have given us. We want to be faithful in following you well. We want to be faithful in being the witnesses that you've called us to be. But God, we want to be faithful in thinking correctly and wisely discerning what it is that we do as well. And so we ask that you'd help us to have that wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Let's go to verse 23 in the text. We'll read a little bit and then we'll just try to unpack what is going on there. There Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek whatever is sold in the meat market without... I'm sorry, I skipped a line there. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then in verse 25, he begins working through some scenarios. And so what we have in the beginning there of verse 23 is almost a restatement of a quote he made in chapter 6, verse 2. When he, in chapter 6, in beginning to address sexual immorality, quoted the Corinthians and asked them a couple questions. Gave them some questions to consider before he gave them his instructions. And so I'm going to put those questions on the screen for us, there's only two in chapter 10, but the middle one really comes from chapter 6. And so I'm going to put it on there because it's worth repeating and I think helps us understand. And, and this goes to any and every decision in life, quite frankly. Is this choice helpful to others? Is this choice enslaving to me? The third one that we get from chapter 10, verse 24, or 23, I should say, is does it build up others? That's a reminder of what Paul had said in chapter 8, where knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So when I make this choice, is it, it whether it's to use playing cards or go out to dinner on a Sunday or dance, is it helpful? Is it enslaving? Am I going to find myself... Walking into a potential trap, does it build up others? This is a great way to think about choices in life. Now in some ways behind this exists two other questions that I think believers have struggled with for a long time. Perhaps since Christ ascended in regards to our relationship with the world. And it's this. What does it look like to be a believer living in a culture that's far from God? Do I just simply withdraw? Or do I just blend in? And I think we can reject either one of those. So I'm curious. Are there examples that you can think of where you have seen groups or... Let's not do individuals because I I don't want us to gossip but I think there's plenty of groups that could provide examples of withdrawing where they have functionally removed themselves any examples come to mind the Amish yeah sure to a certain degree sure yeah Sort of like monks in monasteries. Uh, I mean, we don't perhaps see that as much in American culture, but it it exists elsewhere. Where there's just a withdrawal. I'm going to take a vow of you know silence or hunger or you know whatever it might be. There's a withdrawing there. Now the other one, to just blend in, I'm not going to ask necessarily for examples there because that one gets a little bit more dicey, um, but the other one is that I'm sure there are people that you know, there are certainly people that I know that if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus, they would say yes, and if you just kind of observed how they lived, there wouldn't be a lot of evidence there that they were any different than the person who said, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't read the Bible. I And we got to ask that question of ourselves at times <laughs> could that be said of us but the choice to withdraw is there and perhaps at times one that we might even be tempted to go with I know Carrie and I have joked before with different friends of ours like let's just get all let's just get a mobile home for each family put a big pool in the middle of them and just kind of circle up and do, you know like do a thing and just kind of isolate from the world and it's withdrawing and we've joked about that before, just because we observe culture and it's, it's a very different world for my kids today than it was even when I was a kid. and yet the other side to blend in is just as dangerous. And I think the scenarios that Paul then walks through helps us figure out what it looks like to not withdraw and what it looks like to not blend in. And he begins there in verse 25, doing so, and has the command, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, so there is the command given. Scenario number one is buying food in the marketplace. Okay, so again, the meat in the marketplace would have come from the temple. It would have been meat that was butchered and sacrificed and left over from the banquet that would have made its way from the temple in sacrifice to a god, to an idol, to then the marketplace. And it would have been sold. And here Paul just says, when you're at the marketplace eat whatever is sold without raising grounds on conscience. So you're buying the meat, if we can just think about it. You're the one, if you're going to eat it, you're probably going to be the one to buy it. You're there at the market. You're buying the meat. And in verse 26, we're given the rationale then, which is very similar to what we had seen in chapter 8. For the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. So, Paul makes his argument as to why you and I should have no struggles at the grocery store or at the marketplace buying meat that we might suspect came from an idol and the sacrifice to an idol. And he kind of returns to the argument that was given in chapter 8 where, well, idols actually aren't anything because the Lord owns everything. He made, the, he made the cow. You can eat the cow because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so the instructions, the command that he gives in scenario one is to buy and eat. The word buy doesn't show up into the text, but if you're going to go to the marketplace, you're going to eat the meat sold in the marketplace, it just presumes that you have bought the meat to take home and eat. You're not to consume yourself with wondering whether this thing or that thing has somehow been tainted. God owns it all anyways, is what he's saying. Now, here's what I think is really, really interesting in the text. Paul doesn't tell them to boycott the marketplace. And I find that just quite frankly fascinating because around Christmas time in particular... Christian organizations all over the place in America call for boycotts of different organizations if they don't use the word Christmas. I mean, has anybody ever seen that before? Okay, all right. I just find it really interesting that Paul doesn't go there. He could have, and maybe I'm reading into the text, but he could have said, "Hey, when you're at the marketplace and you think that meat's been brought over from the temple, you need to ask for meat that wasn't from the temple." I mean, he could have, he could have said that. He doesn't doesn't go there. There's no hint of boycotting. And maybe that wasn't a Corinthian phenomenon like it seems to be an American phenomenon. But I do find it interesting that there's certain segments of Christian culture that will demand non-Christians to use their words and buy into their values And then be absolutely aghast when they don't and demand to boycott because they haven't. And the thought of non-believers having the values and the language and the actions that believers should have is completely contrary (laughs) to what the scriptures teach us about what that looks like. As believers, we don't even always have. The language and the values and actions that believers are to have. And I remember one in, in one particular instance. This was this was years ago. We were still in Indiana. Um, there was a Christian organization calling for the boycott of Radio Shack. And it wasn't just the boycott of Radio Shack because they didn't use the word Christmas in their signage and their marketing. They used the word holiday gifts, not Christmas gifts. Um, it wasn't just a boycott. It was also a, and here's their phone number. You need to call and tell them that you're boycotting them. I thought, wow, that's like, that kind of next level boycotting. Well, I, I, I took the phone number. I called. And I got somebody in customer service. I asked for a, a manager. And so I got on the phone with the manager and I said, look, I, I, I understand that you have probably gotten a lot of calls from people saying that they're Christians and telling you they're boycotting Radio Shack. Because you've not used the word Christmas. Is that correct? And it was kind of a pause. You know, yeah, yeah we have. And you can just kind of hear it in his voice. Like this person probably had fielded several of them. Uh, and I just I said to the man, I said, look I just I, I want to apologize for the people that have done that. Because that's out of step with the character of Jesus. And it, it, it it's not representative, well, of what he would do. And then 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 there was just silence. <laughs> it's like, so, I was just calling to do so. Hope you have a great day. Sorry for all of the headaches. But when there's not overt sinfulness. And let's be clear, using the word holiday gifts instead of Christmas gifts is not overt sinfulness. Paul just says, buy and eat. Quit making a big deal. And I just wonder sometimes if we make a big deal out of so many little things, that when it's time to make a big deal out of a big thing, we've lost our ability to do so because it just sounds like it's just one more thing in the line. Does that make sense? Like, using the word holiday gifts on marketing is very different than standing up for the rights of the unborn but if we yell about both with the same veracity and passion and enthusiasm and unendingness they get confused so when you're at the marketplace you don't need to make a big stink about whether this came from that or this bye Eat. You'll be okay. Scenario two, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So here the scenario is you've been invited to the home of an unbeliever. They have prepared food for you. If you are so inclined to go to their house, you may eat and be free to do so without the need to raise objections. You don't need to interrogate them as to whether or not they got their meat at the right place. You don't need to go there. You don't need to make a big deal about it. Really, the idea here is go if you wish and eat. Now in this verse, the command that Paul gives is to eat. It is not to go. And so if you're uncomfortable going, there's no command that you go. But if you're so inclined to go, when you're there, you don't need to make a big fuss. in some ways to connect this to kinda 2019 and how we would engage in it. I kinda put this in the camp of parties where there may not be overt sinfulness and you've been invited to attend. Maybe it's a neighborhood backyard bash, maybe it's a graduation party. I mean, I think we've all probably at least familiar enough with those opportunities. And there, there are parties that you kind of know what you're going to get into, perhaps because of what's been purchased ahead of time or bragged about. Or, I mean, I had some friends in Indiana where you kind of knew that when they were talking about picking up the kegs for the party they were throwing, like there was going to be a certain direction that party was headed. That party's a little different than the, hey, we're going to throw some hot dogs on the grill party. So these parties or these opportunities to gather where there's no, quote-unquote, overt sinfulness. I think Paul, again, is saying, if you go, do so without looking to make a big deal over what's happening. And I would add to that, just and this is more of a wisdom thing, if you find yourself uncomfortable, you can always politely excuse yourself. You can always politely say, you know, no, thank you, I'd rather not eat that or drink that and um, that's not in and of itself offensive but don't go raising a big stink scenario three though is where perhaps overt sinfulness becomes apparent in scenario one and two there wasn't overt sinfulness known maybe you kind of wondered if it was in the background but it wasn't known. And so the instructions there were, hey, don't go digging for it. If it's not known on the surface, if it's not clear, you, there's some freedom there. Well, scenario three changes that a little bit. And so in verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of Conscience. So here in scenario three, Paul's instructions are to what I would summarize speak and do not eat. Now, the command is to do not eat. I added the word speak just because I think the implication is there that you're going to have some type of conversation if the individual says, hey, this was sacrificed to an idol and you have to decline. And so they bought the meat. They might have sacrificed the meat. We might say there there was overt sinfulness. In this case, it's idolatry. It's the sacrificing of meat. And here the idea is very consistent with what Paul has said is to knowingly participate in the sacrifice of pagans is to actually end up encouraging the one who offered you the meat in their idolatry. And I think that's how we make sense of Paul's statement that it's for the sake of conscience. And look at verse 29 because he tells us whose conscience he's talking about. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So Paul's being very consistent here. The food sacrificed to idols can be consumed because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But if you find out it's been sacrificed to idols... Don't eat it for the sake of the one who had told you. Not your sake. It's the sake of the other person. And I think there's kind of two big ideas as to why that would be true. And it's because believers are to be singular in their focus and unyielding in their passion. And so our, our, our focus is to do all things for the glory of God. And to do it with all of the passion that the Lord has given us and empowers us to do so. And so to compromise would potentially harm the unbeliever we were with. Because they might be led to believe that their actions aren't really a big deal. And to politely decline in that moment is a way of saying, I can't participate because of who Jesus is. And the second would then be kind of the the inverse of that. If you did partake, then you might be seen as a hypocrite. Somebody who on this side is going to say, I'll do all things for the glory of God, but then have an exception. Over here. And so the idea to just try to unpack in the context of overt sinfulness, here the the instance is idolatry, but let's say it's a, a party or a gathering with overt sinfulness, the commands just don't engage. Don't engage for the sake of the person who invited you. And you can politely decline those, and you can I, I can't, I can't come because of what I know you're planning to do, or I, I can't participate in that because of what that is, or I, I can't eat that, or you know I, I probably just need to be on my way and go home. I remember working with um, a, a gentleman at Applebee's back when I was in college, and uh, we were talking about just different parties, and uh, he was he was of the opinion that the only way you could have a party was to be completely inebriated at said party. And and it it, it went, like it, it wasn't just that, because that, that's kind of a college, secular college kid mentality. Uh, but it went to the extent where he, he literally could not conceive that you could have any fun if there wasn't alcohol involved. And I remember having that conversation with him where it's, like, it just was completely outside of any framework of reference that he had in his mind whatsoever. Where it's like, you, you you get together and you do stuff with college buddies and nobody drinks? No. It's like, what do you do? I don't know. Throw a football? Grill hamburgers? We talk about life? it just, it, it just completely outside of any frame of reference that he had. And in his mind, you only had fun when you got wasted and then you often didn't remember the fun that you were purported to have had and it just became clear in that conversation like am well, probably not going to come and be at one of your parties just because of where i know you're going to be taking that and it wasn't i mean he didn't get angry at me we just left it at those kind of lines and it was okay but here's Paul's instruction of, if you know overt sinfulness is going to be there, don't eat. If you know the movie is raunchy, don't watch. If you know the music is completely opposed to the things of the Lord, don't listen. If you know the book has all sorts of trash in it, don't Read it. It's just how this gets applied throughout life. If we're going to be singular in focus and unyielding in passion, then these things got to matter. And in some ways, I'll just show you this. This might be a Tim-ism. Let's think of rock and roll for a moment. Okay, I shared with you a couple weeks ago how the, the pastor friend of mine down in Kentucky was convinced that beats two and four were of the devil. And it was one and three that were not. And so we had to stay away from all two and four rhythmic music. Uh, there, in and of itself, in my opinion, is another one of those moments where this man rightly saw that people had crossed the line. But ended up picking up on the wrong specific to make his convictions on okay so i don't think personally there's any note or arrangement of notes or chord structures or key signatures or time signatures or beats per minute or whatever you want to put to it that in and of itself is sinful if those things are true Then they're from God, actually, because all truth is from God. Now, have they been twisted to be used for things that dishonor the Lord? Well, there's no question about that. So it's not the chords in rock and roll music that are of the devil, it's the lyrics. It's not the rhythm in rock and roll music that's of the devil, it's the lyrics but when we just kind of all mash it together and equate that beats two and four are wrong, or we, we end up missing the point. And so if the lyrics don't honor the Lord, don't listen, but it's not that E minor power chords are in and of themselves sinful. But this takes a particular level of engagement. Here in scenario three, it's you were invited and somebody told you this. Well, that, when we're talking about books and music and movies and those things, it, it takes a particular level of engagement on our part to maybe just ask the questions. Is this going to be overtly sinful or not? But then in verse 31, you see where the big idea is recaptured. And we've been using the phrase singular in focus, unyielding in passion to try to just get our minds wrapped around this. And there it is in verse 31, whether you eat or drink, in all that you do, do all for the glory of God. I think eating and drinking is in part a reference to the most mundane things in life. But it's also a reference back to what Paul had said in the beginning part of chapter 10 where he talks about the eating and drinking of the Lord's table the bread and the cup and how you can't have participation with the lord's body and his blood and what those elements represent and symbolize and participation with things that are completely set against him so whether you eat or drink and all that you do do all to the glory of god verse 32 give no offense to jews or greeks or to the church of god that's Unbelieving Israel, that's unbelieving Gentiles, and believers. Those are the three categories, the exact same three categories that he gave in chapter 9 when he says, look, to the Jews I became a Jew so that I could win Jews. To the Greeks I became a Greek so that I could win Greeks. To the weak, a reference back to believers, I became weak so that I could not harm them. Give no offense, just as I, verse 33, try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. I lay down my rights. I surrender for the sake of you, for the sake of them. be singular in focus, unyielding in passion. It's what we're called to be. This passage gives us just, I think, some good ways to just think through how does that actually look like and what does that look like in practice in today's world? What does it look like to live in this culture that is continually and progressively against the Lord? but yet be singular in focus and in yielding and passion. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and what it is that it tells us and how it is that you, you give us instruction for what it looks like to live in this world. And God, you certainly knew what 2019 America was going to look like when Paul wrote this letter and you inspired him to do so. God, we're not sure what 2021 America is going to look like. But here it is that you have given us your word in its timelessness. That it still does apply today. It still does help us understand what it looks like to live and be in the world, but not of it. To be singular in our focus. Unyielding in our passion. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to honor you, and whether we eat or drink, that we would do all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.